0: Well, from the very beginning, we set out to glorify God through a pure, deep, and reaching church, knowing that the best way to do that was to faithfully and to consistently exposit the Scriptures, God's holy Word, that's powerful and effective and that equips us for every good work. So, for 20 years, we've been committed to doing that. God is faithful. Anybody know that? Right? And our call is to be faithful back to Him as individuals. And as a church, and that's been our aim. It's always been our aim. Hasn't always been easy these past 20 years, but what did we expect? A cakewalk? No, we did not. This is what we signed up for. An intense spiritual battle, and that's what we've gotten, of course. I mean, the wicked one hates what we do here. So he wickedly opposes us at every turn, so be it. We won't waver. We still won't compromise from what we know God wants us to do. Our church was founded on taking a stand for God and His Word, and we've been committed to that for 20 years, and we will remain faithful and committed to that. I believe, I firmly believe God is well-pleased with Faith Community Church. What's better than that? It's been a true joy being your preaching pastor here these past 20 years. I want to thank my wife, Tiffany, and my three daughters, Katie, Emily, and Allie. I want to thank the elders and the deacons and the staff and everyone else in this awesome body of believers, um, I am grateful to God for you. It's a joy to serve God with you and to live life together. And I truly look forward to what God has for us in the future. Intense spiritual battles, yes. And hard times, yes. <laughs> but great blessings too. And great ministry and more souls being saved. And the saved growing in their faith. And best of all, a great God to glorify for the next 20 plus years. Let's stay faithful. Let's stay faithful for the glory of God. That said, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. John 4, 1 through 26. The first sermon I preached at Faith Community Church was from this passage, so I thought it would be good to look back at this passage 20 years later. True worship. That's what we're about, right? And true worship. Worshiping Him, lifting Him high, exalting Him, loving and praising Him as our all in all Him alone. And my heartfelt prayer is that when God looks at us as a church, that He sees a church that is truly worshiping Him, that He sees a church that's filled with true worshipers, that He's extremely well-pleased with what He sees. That's, That's what I want. That's what we want. So John chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. We'll stop here for now and look at the first fact from this passage, which is this, that Jesus departed for Galilee. Note that in the previous chapter, the Pharisee Nicodemus came up to Jesus at night and he had a conversation about eternal things, which is very interesting. I mean, the Pharisees, uh, they were the separated ones, right? They were the spiritually powerful and elite. They were those who were religious externally, but were very wicked internally. They were cold and hard and callous. They were hypocrites. They were more concerned about how they looked to people than how they looked to God. And as we know, The Pharisees hated Christ because he threatened them. He saw through them and they knew it and he called them out on their sin. They didn't like that at all. But Nicodemus is a different kind of Pharisee because in John chapter 3, he is genuinely asking Jesus about eternal things. And as we know, after Christ's death, Nicodemus was there to prepare Christ's body and to put him in the tomb along with Joseph of Arimathea. And it was an act that revealed that he had indeed become a true follower of Christ. So the Pharisees are now being affected by the ministry of Christ. But also in John chapter 3, we see Jesus baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And then we see John saying, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And so John is doing what he was called to do, point people to Christ the Savior. That's it. And now John's ministry that was so prominent before, it's now beginning to decrease and Christ is now coming onto the scene. And because of the rising prominence of Christ, the Pharisees were severely threatened. It threatened their authority, it threatened their pride, it threatened their power, and Jesus knew it. And so, because the time wasn't yet right for a real intense confrontation, instead of waiting until he was driven out of Judea by the Pharisees, Jesus willingly left and departed for Galilee. Now, please understand that Jesus didn't really leave to avoid a confrontation with the Pharisees. But more so, Jesus left because he needed to go through Samaria, verse 4. See, he needed to meet with someone. He needed to have an encounter with a woman who desperately needed what Jesus alone could give. So he left for Galilee. Now, please note that Judea, where Jesus was at at this time, was in the south. Galilee was up in the north. And right there in the middle was this place called Samaria. Now, politically, Samaria wasn't a distinct region, but its culture and its religion was definitely distinct from that of Israel. See, Samaria's history is very interesting. It was way back under King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that the once united kingdom of Israel split into two. That's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. The northern kingdom of Israel was led by the rebel Jeroboam. The southern kingdom of Judah was led by Rehoboam. And because Jeroboam feared that the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel might reunite, he established a counterfeit religion with its own place of worship, which was at Bethel. Later, a wicked northern king named Omri built the city of Samaria, which he made his capital, the capital of the northern kingdom. He also built a temple and an altar there to Baal, a pagan deity. Eventually, the name of this city became synonymous, not just for the city, but for the entire region, Samaria. Now, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, who scattered the middle and upper classes throughout the other nations that they had conquered. Then, they replaced the dispersed Israelites with with pagans from other lands. These pagan people who worshiped false gods then intermarried with the remaining Israelites there in Samaria, resulting in a nation of what they called half-breeds, Samaritans, which was a most distasteful and evil thing for a devout Jew. Worse yet, the true religion of Israel became intermingled with pagan idolatry. So just to recap, Israel became divided The northern kingdom turned away from God and served false gods. They were then conquered and many of them were deported. And then people from other nations who worshiped false gods moved in and intermarried with the remaining Jewish people. And it was these people who became the Samaritans. Now, about 150 years after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered, the southern kingdom of Judah was also conquered and many of these people were deported by the Babylonians. After 70 years, they were able to return to their land, which many of them did. They then rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans to the north were shut out from helping with the temple, and so they constructed their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim. Later, their temple was destroyed by a Jewish ruler of Judea, and the already strong hostilities between the two groups grew even more hostile. By the time of Christ, the Jews and the Samaritans Man, they had strong hostilities towards each other. Very strong. I mean, they despised each other, Jews and Samaritans. Belief-wise, the Samaritans professed to believe in the God of Israel and awaited the coming Messiah, and that's very good. However, they accepted only the first five books of the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures. On top of that, wherever they found it necessary to justify their religion and to justify their place of worship, they modified the law of God. And that's not good. There's nothing good about that. So they mingled truth with error. They mixed the true God with false gods. They mixed God's way with pagan ways. And they came up with this jumbled mess of a religion. And so the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was definitely strained at this time. At the time of Christ, Samaria was surrounded by Jewish regions both to the north, Galilee, and to the south, Judea, and the Samaritans were right there in the middle. The Samaritans were known as half-breeds, compromisers, pagans, and it got to the point that many devout Jews wouldn't set foot on Samaritan land. In fact, for some, if not many, Although the shortest and most direct way to get from Judea to Galilee was to go straight, <laughs> to pass through Samaria, many would take the much longer route and bypass Samaria altogether just so they wouldn't defile themselves. And again, the hostility was very strong. But look, look what it says. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And so he does. And here we see the second fact from this passage, and that is this, that Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Verse 5, let's look. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So look, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is God. And here we see that Jesus is also a man, 100% God, 100% man at the same time in his incarnation. And look, Jesus in his humanity was tired. He was wearied from his journey, verse 6. It was just about noon, the sixth hour, and partly because of his walking, and also probably partly because of the heat of the day, Jesus is ready for some rest, and he's ready for some water. So Jesus and his disciples came to this certain parcel of land that Jacob, way back in Genesis chapter 48, had given to his son Joseph. On this land, a mile or so from the city of Sychar, was Jacob's well. This well was a deep well, a 100 feet deep or so, and it was fed by a spring. Other water was available in the area closer to town, but this well may have provided the best water, and it was at this well that Jesus now sat down to rest. Now at this point, Jesus is alone. Why? Because the disciples had gone into the city to buy some food. And as Jesus is alone resting by this well, a certain Samaritan woman came to draw some water. And please note that this meeting was no accident. No, this meeting is indeed a divine appointment. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. See, Now, this is interesting because typically women came for water earlier in the day and they often came in groups. But this woman was alone. Why? Why would a woman come here alone at this time of the day? There's two reasons why. Perhaps because there was a sudden need, or perhaps because she was a social outcast. A. W. Pink says, she stole forth at this hour of the midday sun, because a woman of her character, shunned by other women, did not care to meet anyone. See, this this woman's sins were very evident, very, very evident to everyone in town. And while others can maybe hide many of their sins. This woman's sins were apparent. And thus, it seems that she was most likely a social outcast. And so she goes to the well thinking no one else would be there because she didn't want to see anyone there. But look, Jesus is there. And now this conversation begins. First, Jesus begins by saying, give me a drink. Now at first glance, that might sound harsh. Give me a drink. But it's not harsh at all. In fact, This asking for a drink is both shocking and it's wonderful. And here, sitting at this well, Christ is beginning to settle with this woman the great question of eternity. Now, among the Jews, it was considered the depth of degradation even to converse with the Samaritans, and to be kind to them like Jesus is now was something that wasn't even to be remotely considered. But not so our Lord. No, no. Jesus has no problem asking for a drink of water from one of the worst sinners in this city of the Samaritans. Note how they have nothing whatsoever in common. He is Jewish. Jewish. She is Samaritan. He's a man. She's a woman. He's perfect. She's a terrible, wretched sinner indeed, but that doesn't stop the Lord. And in asking for a drink from this woman, Jesus is doing something utterly unexpected. See, by tradition, a teacher wouldn't speak with a woman in public, even his own wife. Also, Jewish people didn't share eating and drinking utensils with Samaritans, let alone ask a favor from them. And so Jesus' request genuinely surprised this woman. But look, cultural barriers don't stop the Lord. Neither do racial barriers. They don't stop the Lord, right? Notice a woman shocked with Christ's request. How is it that you, being a Jew... Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. And she's truly amazed right at this point at what Jesus is doing. This isn't normal. What's going on here? Who is this man? Why is he being kind to me when everyone else shuns me? This isn't normal. But instead of being hated and scorned and shunned, she's spoken kindly to and she's asked a favor from. The conversation continues. I can give you living water. Verses 10 through 12. Look. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, this had to have been a shock for this woman to hear. And instead of explaining why Jesus would speak to a Samaritan woman, he immediately goes to showing that she, not he, is actually the one in need of water. And guess what? It's not water from a well. Not at all. No, it's living water. And notice that Jesus quickly gets to the heart of the matter. Oh yeah, she might be physically thirsty, but the truth is she was spiritually thirsty. She was spiritually Parched, and she needed what Jesus Christ alone could give her, forgiveness, life, peace with God, eternal salvation, living water. And how many today need this living water? They might not even know it, but they're desperate for it. So many around us, right? Maybe even some here right now. Notice that Jesus mentioned something that this woman didn't know the gift of God, which is salvation, and the eternal blessings that he alone can give. And then also notice that she didn't know the true identity of the one that she was talking to, Jesus, God the Son, her Lord and her Savior. If she knew these things, she certainly wouldn't be wasting her time talking about physical water, but she would indeed be talking about eternal truths, but not yet. Notice also how a few minutes ago, Jesus was the one who was thirsty, and she was the one who could give him water. But now look, she's really the one who is thirsty, and Jesus is now the one who can give her water, living water, water for her parched soul. See, without this living water, without Jesus, who alone satisfies the true thirst of the soul, you are indeed parched, and you are desperate. Yes, you are. But with him... You have that which truly satisfies to the utmost for all eternity. See, Jesus alone is the answer. Jesus alone is your only hope. Jesus alone can rescue you from all your sin. Jesus alone can save you and give you life. And the eternal blessings that He alone can give. The eternal blessings that come through Him alone. Jesus alone gives that. Living water. And this woman didn't have it, not yet. Do you? At this point, the Samaritan woman doesn't really understand what Jesus is saying. I mean, the living water that Jesus was speaking about was salvation in all its fullness, the forgiveness of sin and the blessing that he alone can give. But this woman takes him literally. And when she heard that term, living water, she thought he was talking about perhaps better water than what she was getting. Her response in verse 11 reveals that mindset. Um, uh, Where are you going to get this living water? You don't know anything, uh, you don't have anything to draw water with this well is deep. How's that going to happen? It makes no sense. She continues, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who gave us this well. He drank from it himself along with his sons and their livestock. How are you greater than him? How are you going to get better water? Note that the language here is emphatic, meaning that this woman is both doubtful and skeptical. And when she asks this question, her implied answer is no. (laughs) He's not better than Jacob, and he's not going to be able to produce this better water. I mean, there's nothing special about Jesus in her mind, not yet at least. He's just another man, oh, one who's different in the fact that he actually spoke to her, but just another man nonetheless. Definitely not better than Jacob, that revered patriarch whose name was changed to Israel, the one who was the father of the the nation and the one who built this well? No way. And if he had better water, then he must think he's better than Jacob. And she didn't buy that. Come to find out this woman was wrong, very wrong, not just one time, but two times. See, the living water Jesus can offer doesn't come from an ordinary well like she thought. And Jesus is indeed better and greater than Jacob. And she's soon going to find that out. Conversation continues, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. (laughs) So, look, the conversation continues when Jesus says, whoever drinks this water will never thirst. See, the woman isn't getting it, and so Jesus proceeds to get into a a deeper conversation with her. Hey, if you drink the water I can give you, you're never going to thirst again. And not only that, my living water will become a fountain inside of you that will spring up into eternal life. How about that? And now Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, isn't he? He's getting to the heart of the matter. So far, she's not really getting what he's been saying, but she's still here talking to him, and she's interested in all this water talk. Her response in verse 15 indicates that she still was thinking that Jesus was talking about physical water, but she had to know that this water was more than just physical water in some weird way because Jesus mentioned everlasting life in verse 14. And now this is getting really good. Jesus isn't going to be put off, no. But instead, he's determined to reveal himself to this sin-sick woman. Oh yes, her physical thirst was quenched, but not her spiritual thirst. See, why? Because the true seat of the thirst within man lies too deep for the waters of this earth to quench. And the real thirst of this man's soul, is a a woman's soul, is a spiritual one. And that's why material things are unable to satisfy it. How many people around us have all the things that money can buy, but they're dead and they're dying inside? How many? And while people may take their fill of every kind of physical and earthly pleasure, it will always fail to truly satisfy because only Jesus can do that. Oh yes, they may surround themselves with every comfort and luxury and that wealth can provide and their heart will still be empty. They may court the honors of the world and climb to the highest pinnacle of human fame, but the applause of men will leave an aching void inside of all of them. They may have everything in this world, but in their hearts, they're saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Why? Because only Jesus has this living water. And only Jesus can parch, can truly satisfy the parched soul. And only Jesus can fill the void of the thirsty human heart. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And some here today have tried so very hard to find true joy in men, in women, in riches, in drugs, in alcohol, in so many other things. But guess what? You're still thirsty. Because Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy that thirst. What are you waiting for? Well, now it's time for Jesus to get to the heart of the matter. Up to this point, Jesus has been fairly vague, and this woman still isn't really understanding, but she will. Verses 16 through 20. Jesus said to her, "'Go, call your husband and come here.' The woman answered and said, "'I have no husband.'" Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now Jesus is getting really to the heart of the matter. Now Jesus has moved to the deepest level of this woman's need, her need for cleansing from sin. To do this, Jesus gently exposes the sin in her life, and he does this by telling her to bring her husband. Oh, not, not that. Not that. Let's talk about anything but that. <laughs> Call your husband and come here. Uh, uh-oh. I have no husband. What she says here is true, but she's also being dishonest and... I think she's hoping that Jesus will take her answer at face value and move on to something else. But not Jesus. And this is exactly what she didn't want to happen. I have no husband. You're right. In fact, you've had five, and the one you have now isn't your husband. Oh, man. Right? Here, Jesus is doing a couple of things. First... He's revealing that he's much more than just a mere man because he knows things that he shouldn't know as a stranger to Samaria. I mean, Jesus knew all about this woman, her heart, her life, her very thoughts, and nothing could be hidden from him. She might be a complete stranger to him in the flesh, yet he was thoroughly acquainted with her as he is with all of us. He knows you, see? He knows You, He knows your heart. Nothing is hidden from His watching eyes. And you cannot hide from Him, especially your sin. Second, Jesus is unmasking this woman's sin, which needs to happen in order for her to see her need for a Savior. And while we don't know why this woman has had five husbands, we do know that she's now living in sin with a man who isn't her husband. And it's probably the case that this woman was into some deep sin that has brought about this present situation in her life. And here, Jesus is doing what must be done for this woman to be saved. What? For her sin to be exposed, and then for a conviction of that sin, which will then lead to repenting of that sin, and then to turning to Christ in saving faith. See, as the one who can rescue her from that sin. See how it works? In essence, Jesus is saying, if you really want this living water that I've been talking about, you can obtain it only as a poor, convicted, contrite sinner. So, let's deal with your sin, see. And for any of us to come to Christ, we have to see our sin, and we have to see our desperate thirst for forgiveness from that sin. We have to. We have to see our need for salvation. We have to see our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. So, here... Jesus exposes this woman's true thirst, her spiritual thirst, and now all the cards are out on the table. Her sin, worthy of death, is now out in the open. No hiding it now, because guess what? This man, Jesus, knows. And now her true thirst and desperate need for forgiveness is self-evident. Yes, she was thirsty physically. That's why she was at the well. But in reality, she spiritually dried up, and her real need was for living water for her soul, for forgiveness from all her sin, for that grace and mercy and cleansing and life that Jesus Christ alone can give to her. Isn't it true that to come to Christ, we got to see our desperate need for a Savior? Right? What then needs to happen? Well, we need to see that we're wretched sinners. We need to see that our sin is offensive to Holy God and it separates us from Him. We need to see that our sin banishes us from heaven and condemns all of us to hell. We need to see that we are desperate, needy, spiritually poor, blind, parched, naked, and starving for what Jesus Christ alone can give. Without Him, we are nothing. Without Him, we will always be empty. Always. Even though we may have all the money and all the things in the world, without Him, we are hopeless, helpless, and heading for wrath. And our desperate need is for what He alone can give. So, Jesus exposes this woman's sin so they can deal with the real Issue, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, verse 19. Here progress is being made because notice that she doesn't make excuses for her sin. Instead, she affirms what he said. You've got to be at least a prophet because you're right about my life and you're right about my sin. You've got to be a prophet. And now she's beginning to understand that Jesus is talking about much more than mere physical water, but rather he's talking about eternal things. And please notice that in light of this new understanding, the woman now brings up worship. It's very interesting. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and the Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. You see what's going on? The woman has been talking about physical water. Jesus has been talking about living water, eternal life, and the salvation that he can bring to empty and to dying souls. And now finally, after exposing her sin, she's getting it. In essence, I think she's saying, I, I gotta get my life right. I I want to worship, but I, I don't know where to go. What do I do? Where do I go to worship the true God who can help my true need? How am I going to handle my sin problem? So she brings up the issue of worship. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm needy. Yes, I'm desperate. So help me. Show me what to do about my sin. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now here we see some key elements of what true worship looks like. It shows us that our focus needs to be on God and not on us. On who we worship, not on where we worship. On His will, not on ours, as those who have been so graciously rescued from our wretched sin that once condemned us. But before we look at those elements of true worship, let's first look at what happened with the woman. Look, in verses 21 through 24, Jesus speaks about worship, which we're going to get to in just a second. But when Jesus is done, look what this sinful Samaritan woman said. I know that Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer is coming. And when he does, he will tell us all things. And that's amazing. Why? Because her first thought was that Jesus was a Jewish man, right? Then she thought he was a kind Jewish man who would dare to address someone like her. Then... She perceived him to be a prophet. And now look, she brings up the Messiah, the Christ, the coming deliverer. So why does she do this? Because now she's no longer thinking about physical water or physical things, but spiritual things, eternal things, the state, the condition of her soul. What will happen to her when she meets her maker? So look what Jesus has done so far. He brings this woman to the point where she understands that she's a sinner. She sees that she is in need of salvation. She understands that her Samaritan religious system cannot save her, which we'll see in a second. And she understands that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. So then Jesus says, I am he. Isn't that good? In other words, I'm I'm it. I'm the answer. I'm the answer. Yes, he is for you too. And for me. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one to worship. I'm the one who can save you. I'm the one who can deliver you. I'm the one who can quench the thirst of your soul. He's it, and he alone. And when he died on that cross and and rose up from the dead, our victory as believers over sin, self, and Satan was secure. Amen? Yes! Right? Right? Sin condemns us, but Jesus became our substitute for sin because of his great love for wretched sinners like us. Sin demands death, so Jesus took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin in our place as believers. He felt the crushing blow that our sin deserved, and he died so that we who believe can live. I am he. And he certainly is. Anybody? He's it. He's it. He is indeed our life, our love, our joy, our crown, our all in all. He's indeed our Lord, our Savior, our hope, our, our peace, our glory. And look, we have every indication that this poor sinful woman became a true believer who repented of her sin and turned to Christ in saving faith who then went out and shared the truth of Christ with those around her. Verse 39, that's not part of our passage, but I'm going to read it. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of this Samaritan woman. And now in Christ, look, her thirst is quenched. Is yours? Jesus, again, Jesus is the only one who can truly quench it. And for us to already have him, the closer you get to him, the better. And don't we know it? Don't we know it? I, I mean, come on. Please don't be content with your current relationship with God when it could be even better tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. No. Keep growing, keep reaching, keep striving and never stop until you're taken home to glory. Our saving God certainly deserves that from us who have been graciously delivered from the pit of hell and set on the eternal foundation of salvation and life. More of Him. Right? More of Him. That's how we all should feel. Okay, but what about true worship? Three things. First, a definition. The word worship is used 10 times in this brief passage, and it literally means to kiss toward, with the idea of kissing the hand of a superior out of respect for him. So when it comes to God, the goal of worship is to honor, to revere, to glorify, and to magnify Him out of our love and respect for Him. So we figuratively kiss His hand by the way we live for His glory, by the way we live for His honor. It's worship. Worship is indeed what life is about. This is what we were created to do. This is our chief aim as Christians, to glorify Him, to please Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. So worship is important, and how it's done is important. In verse 24, Jesus says that God is spirit. This is his essential nature. It means that God doesn't have a material body. Jesus did for his 33 years in his incarnation, but God in his essence doesn't have a material body. He is invisible to human eyes. He isn't confined to one locale at a time. He's omnipresent. He has existed as spirit for all eternity before he created the material universe. And our call is to worship and exalt this almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, worthy, holy God who created everything. Okay. So how can we do that properly for the all-worthy one who saves wretched sinners like us? How? Our passage mentions three things. First, true worshipers worship in spirit. In verse 20, the Samaritan woman mentions a mountain. The mountain she's talking about is Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Now, Mount Gerizim was where the Samaritans' pagan temple of worship was built until it was destroyed in 125 B.C. But even so, the Samaritans still worshiped there on that mountain. But Jesus says that they worshiped what they didn't know because it was without truth, See? Remember, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as coming from God. So their knowledge of God was very limited. Add to that the fact that they mixed their worship with pagan worship practices, and their worship was all messed up. Yes, they knew some of the truths about God, but they didn't know the fullness of what or who it was that they were worshiping, so it wasn't true worship of the one true God. Samaritan worship was known to be aggressive, enthusiastic, excited, and faithful, but they didn't have the right content, see? In other words, they worshiped in spirit, but not in truth. Spirit referring to zeal, passion, enthusiasm, and heart. But even with that, it wasn't true worship. How many false religions do we know who worship what they worship with great zeal and with great fervor, but they aren't worshiping the one true God? They're worshiping a false God, which is really Satan worship. So all zeal, spirit, enthusiasm without truth means nothing to holy God. Nothing. More on that in a bit. Second, we see that true worshipers worship in truth. Now, the Jews whose worship was focused in the temple in Jerusalem was just the opposite of the Samaritans. They accepted all 39 books of the Old Testament, and they had the whole revelation of God up to that point before them. So they had the truth, yes, but as a whole, they lacked the spirit, the passion, the zeal. And the Pharisees reflected what their worship was like. As a whole, they were cold, they were legalistic, they were hypocritical. They went through the motions, but their hearts weren't in it. Now, of course, there were some Jews who had zeal for God, of course, but the basic existing religion in Jerusalem at that time was lifeless. So they had the truth, but their hearts were empty, no spirit. So Jerusalem had the truth without the spirit, and Mount Gerizim had the spirit without the truth. On the one hand is Mount Gerizim, or enthusiastic heresy, and on the other hand is Jerusalem, or barren, lifeless, cold, dead orthodoxy. See, the Jews had all the accurate data, but they didn't have any heart. The Samaritans had all the heart, but they didn't have the data. And what Jesus is saying is that both spirit and truth must be present in true worship. It must. I've seen so many people get out of balance here. (laughs) Where they're all enthusiasm, but they warp the word of God, or else they have all this head knowledge, but they're dead and lifeless, and their prayer... The prayer is that we here will worship our good God in spirit and in truth for his glory because we love him. See, this woman wanted to know where to go to worship, but Jesus said, hey, pretty soon it's not going to be about this mountain or the temple because soon I'm going to die on a cross and the veil is going to be torn and everything's going to change. And the truth is, it's not about where you worship, but it's about who you worship and it's about how you worship. The true God in spirit, and in truth. And that's what Faith Community Church has earnestly sought to be about for 20 years. Lifting him high in a manner that pleases and glorifies him because it's all about him. So what do we do? We seek to live our lives for his glory throughout the week. Pleasing Him, making godly decisions, living for His honor, fighting sin, loving Him, obeying Him, and so on. And then we come together as a body, a family, to worship Him. And when (coughs) done, in spirit and in truth, oh how it pleases Him. What's better than that? And so, (coughs) we have sought to preach and teach the Bible as best we can, and that biblical knowledge flows through the head and into the heart and out of our lives and is filled with passion and heart and joy and intense love, or at least it should be. And we've sought to fight legalism and coldness and a critical, hypocritical spirit that hinders true worship of God from the heart. Why? Because we want true worship in both spirit and in truth here. Now think about it. We turned a middle school gymnasium in Fairfield into a place of worship. We turned a grade school in Vacaville into a place of worship. We turned a community center that smelled like stale alcohol, had sticky floors, and was always either too hot or too cold into a place of worship. And now we have turned an old gymnastic center into a place of true worship of the God whom we love. Why? It's not about where. Good thing. It's about who. It's about Him. Some people go to church because they like the music. Some people go to church because they have friends there. Some people go to church because it makes them feel good. Some people go to church for various other reasons, but those reasons are all secondary to the real reason. You should go to church, the church that's going to best help you worship and exalt Christ more in your life. In other words, you should go to the church that's going to allow you to glorify God the most. That's it. So you choose a church that's radically committed to giving you the Bible, the, the 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 one that convicts you of your sin, the one that feeds your soul, the one that allows you to take your focus off of yourself and helps you focus on Him, the one that can deepen your spiritual roots and allow you to battle sin best and please God the most. And that's always been our aim here. And while we uh, haven't been perfect, we will continue to do that because we want Desperately, we want God to be glorified here. Some people hate our church, (laughs) but that doesn't matter. What God thinks is what matters. So third, notice that God is seeking true worshipers. What a thought. God is seeking true worshipers, looking, looking, looking. There, there they are. And we want him to stop when he sees us. Why? Because he's found what he's been looking for. And that's our aim as a church. That's our goal. We lift Christ high. We exalt Christ. We magnify Christ. We're we're all about Christ's glory here. More and more and more. Look, as redeemed sinners like this Samaritan, how could we not worship our incredible God in spirit and in truth, passionately and biblically? He's certainly worthy. And that's what we want here. True worshipers who are filled with love for Jesus who hunger and thirst for him and his truth and who are passionate and zealous to tell others about him like the newly saved Samaritan woman did. Hey, when God goes out looking for true worshipers, let's pray he stops looking when he sees faith, community, church. I found them! I found them! There they are! There they are! Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May this church be well-pleasing in your sight. That's all we want. We just want to glorify you. You saved us. You redeemed us. You delivered us. And now you're molding us more and more into your image till glory, till you take us home. So Lord, help us to worship you daily by the way we live for your glory and help us to worship you corporately as a church body because we love you in spirit and in truth. Because we love you and because you are worthy. We lift you high now. We ask you to bless us the next 20 years of ministry here. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.